and you have to go to the overflow, which I'm dying. I'm so sorry. I can't even believe we're into overflow capacity. So I, was, I said to my husband, if 10 people come, I'll be so happy. We'll just sit in the corner and we'll talk about scripture. So, yeah, and I did show, for those of you who were here yesterday, I took a picture of the audience because my family would not believe, especially my kids. They're like, right, Mom. I said, no, I have evidence. People came to hear me speak. I am cool. People do like me. <laughs> okay, so while they're getting set up in the overflow, I'll kind of just a little bit, for those of you that were not here yesterday, here is just a little bit of uh, backup or kind of stuff that I said. So my name is Tammy Uzalak Hall, and I am a former seminary and institute teacher. That was my full-time job until I quit to be a mom. And I'll, uh, that story is fun. I'll tell you that a little bit later. And uh, I also started studying Hebrew, and I've been studying Hebrew for the last seven years. And so that's why so much of what I talk about is steeped in Hebrew. It's my favorite language. It has changed the way I read the scriptures. It's changed the way I view my experience as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I am so grateful for. I feel so emotional. I just, I love being a member of this church. And the more Hebrew I learn, the more I think, you can't make this stuff up. Like, it is amazing. And then I'm like, our prophet really knows what he's doing. <laughs> oh, yes. And so when he gets up and says Hebrew, I mean, this is one of my favorite stories, but I will tell you this. There is, when he said I learned a Hebrew meaning from two Hebrew scholars, one of those Hebrew scholars, I think, is the prophet's teacher. And I asked the Hebrew scholar, I said, hey, listen, just between you and me, are you teaching the prophet? Come on. And he goes, I've been asked not to talk about that. Like, you are Santa Claus. I knew it. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're teaching the prophet. I won't tell anybody. Some of friends. <laughs> I just think it's so exciting that he's teaching the prophet Hebrew. If the prophet is learning Hebrew, then why not just dive in and have some fun? So that is what we're going to do today, and I'm super excited to be here. We are going to talk about the, the proverb of a virtuous woman, which is so near and dear to my heart. I love this proverb so much, I've spent the last seven years studying it, trying to find out what it really means. And so if any woman in here has ever read it and felt overwhelmed, do I have a hand raised? Yeah, same. In fact, as a as a seminary teacher, every time I would get to this lesson, whenever I had the chance to teach Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31, it was always so difficult for me because right out of the gates, the first thing is you're married. And so I'd be like, someday I'll be virtuous. Someday. Because I was single. And I didn't get married until I was 35 years, 8 months, and 22 days years old. So I was like, let's just go over it, kids, and we'll see what I get to do someday. I mean, it's a crazy proverb. So here is the proverb. And you can look up in your scriptures if you want, because I love to mark them in the seminary in me. But to be honest, there is nothing about this proverb that has been written. There is no commentary on this proverb. So as a seminary or institute teacher, you're just kind of winging it. And that is what I did. I made up stuff left and right. I will tell you right now, I'm all, I was false doctrine like it's nobody's job. And I was like, all right, let's go in here. So first of all, she's married. And then the next thing we know is that verse 12, she's going to do her husband good all the days of her life. 13, she seeks wool and flax. So she knows how to get wool. She shears sheep. And flax, she goes and cuts down the field of flax and turns it into linen. That's where we get linens from flax. Uh, 14, she's a really good cook. 15, she gives food to her family at night because she doesn't sleep. 16, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I said, I'm, I'm reading it as is. 
16, oh, look, she buys a field by herself and she plants a vineyard alone. 17, she's super duper strong because she'd have to be. 18, she perceives that her merchandise, oh, this is great, her candle goeth out by night, absolutely. 19, she layeth her hands to the spindle and the distaff. I love that one because it connects back to verse 13, which is she takes the wool and flax and now she's going to weave it into the material that she's going to use to make the clothes that she's going to make for her family. Like, I got to sew. Fantastic. Yeah. 20. She tells the poor and the needy. 21. She's not afraid of the snow. I mean, I'm teaching this. You guys, don't be virtuous. You can't be afraid of the snow. I'm not sure how that's working out, but uh, apparently God cares. So, verse 21. Her family is dressed very nice. They're all in scarlet. Verse 22. She maketh a clothing. There she is sewing. Verse 23. Her husband's super famous. Verse 24, I love verse 24 because I read it and I'm like, she make a fine linen and sell it and deliver girdles unto her merchant. In my scriptures I wrote, she's got a side gig. She's <laughs> bringing in some money to help out the fam. Um, she opened up her mouth with wisdom. Of course, she's so smart and kind. Uh, she looketh well in the ways of her household. She's not idle in verse 27. 28 is glorious. Her children rise up and call her blessed. And her husband praises her. <laughs> if only. So I'm reading these and I'm going over with my students. And I'm like, sure, okay, write it. Now the name of the lesson is we should marry someone with Christ-like attributes. That's how you teach this lesson. And I get done talking about this proverb, and so I say, okay, young men, what kind of qualities from that do you want in your wife? And they're like, uh, all of them. <laughs> Duh, that's the wife I'm going to marry. And then the poor girls, I'm like, what qualities would you like? And they're all, well, we're already doing everything. Like, I hope he has a job. Like, let's start. Let's start there and honors his priesthood. You bet. Love it. So as I'm going through all these things and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I just, it cannot be this. And so then I, I, I laugh because the only thing I can find written about this proverb is one of the greatest quotes of all time. It's by Lowell Benyon. And Lowell Benyon is a brilliant LDS man, he's an educator, and he is credited with starting all of the institute programs that we have in the church. Here's what he had to say about this proverb. It seems likely to me that this passage could have been written by a man who wanted to be well provided for by a hard-working wife, but who perhaps was less willing to expend the same effort himself. It also seems to me that this ancient ideal lacks any sense that women also need intellectual, social, and spiritual fulfillment. I'm not sure. Looking at the average congregation of Latter-day Saint mothers, that they need to be told to stay up later, get up earlier, or work harder than they are already doing. Can I get an amen? I love that. I read that. I'm like, amen. So it's it's just so fun because then, okay, then I did get married. I was 35 years old, eight months and 22 days. And I remember when I went to my area director and I said, I'm engaged, I'm going to be marrying a widower, and he's got two kids. And at the time when I was teaching, this, the church had a rule that all women with children had to quit. And you could come back when your youngest was a senior in high school. And that was, that's how it was. It's not that way anymore. Thank goodness. But at the time it was, so I said to my area director, do I have to quit? Like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm married, but I can only technically have kids. And he's like, I don't know. No one's ever done this before. Let me get back to you. <laughs> so two weeks go by, and then he calls me, and he says, well, Sister Uselak, this one went all the way to the top. <laughs> and the brethren say, you should quit and raise your family. And I was like, okay. I didn't have a problem. Like, I don't know how you balance that, and then two stepkids who hate me. Let's be <laughs> So I thought, all right, I'll focus, on the, I'll focus on family and kids. And so I stepped into Insta Mom because I married a widower. 
and then I had a baby within the, our first year of marriage. And I can vividly remember the day that I thought, hey, I, I qualify now. I'm virtuous. <laughs> so the two girls went to school, and I put Lily down for a nap, and I grabbed this Bible, this very one. I opened up to Proverbs chapter 31. I sat in my bedroom with my back against the wall, the bed on the side of me, and I dug in and I said, let's figure this out. I am virtuous. And I started reading every single verse and how it applied to me. And when I got to verse 31, I took a deep breath, closed my scriptures, and I slowly backed away. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I can do that. I can't sew right now. And being a good cook, listen, chicken nuggets, that's my, that is my bar for being a new mom. And I felt like there has to be more. And so I didn't open up that Proverbs for 10 years until I started studying Hebrew. Then I got into Hebrew, and I started studying all of these wonderful words and everything about Hebrew, and the thought came, you should read that proverb again. And I was like, well, we all know I can't do it. And so the thought came, no, read it. So I went back and I read it in Hebrew. And I read verse by verse and word by word, and I went to my Hebrew teacher and I said, we got to fix this. And you need to help me write about this. And she's like, I'm not doing that, but I'll teach you all the Hebrew you know, because this is your baby, and you write. And for seven years, I wrote, and I studied, and I dove into what this proverb really means. And I have come away from this experience with the best line ever from all movies. I got done reading the proverb, and it is that line from Princess Bride, and the spirit said, I don't think it means what you're thinking. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, it doesn't mean that. I don't have to or cook, or clean, or stay up late, because I'm already doing all that. So, I dove into it, and here's what I found, and that is what I'm going to share with you today. It is so much fun. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the structure of the proverb. So the first thing we're going to do is we are, I want you to know, this whole proverb, according to all scholars, and I've spent hours at the BYU library, pouring over every book I could find on this proverb, all agree that it is an allegory, a heroic hymn, or a song. Now, for sure it is a song, because how fascinating is this? Every Jewish Sabbath, on Friday night, after the wife lights two candles, and that's how their Sabbath begins, their Shabbat, she lights two candles, and then she brings her hands around the light and pulls it in towards her eyes three times. And that's her way of inviting the bridegroom and the spirit into the home to begin their Sabbath observance. And after that happens, the husband then sings Eshet Chayil, which is the proverb of a virtuous woman. He sings verses 10 through 31 to her, reminding her every Sabbath of who she is and that she's a virtuous woman. And my heart kind of breaks because they're probably thinking, I got a so now. I, I don't know. I don't know it's like for the Jewish religion, but I want to go, but there's so much more I want to show you. So I took the approach of it's an allegory. I think it's an allegory because I think there's more that it's trying to tell us. So in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 1, that's where we have to start. The proverb begins there, and it says, The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Okay, you guys, this is the only scripture we have that is attributed to a woman. So here is King Lemuel writing what his mom said to him about finding a future wife. Here's everything that you want to look for. Now this is pretty interesting because the name Lemuel actually in Hebrew means one who is dedicated to God or one who is like unto God. Now, some traditional commentators and Jewish Midrash, so Jewish Midrash is commentary on the Jewish Bible by Jews. It's phenomenal. I love Jewish Midrash. It identified that this is Bathsheba speaking to Solomon. And some Jewish Midrash attributes the name Lemuel to Solomon. 
So some people believe it's Bathsheba saying to Solomon, who's so wise, if you're going to get married, here's what you need to look for. And he married a lot of ladies. So, and then he kind of went off the deep end and married some not so fabulous ladies. Now that's something interesting to think about. But what I like right here is if Lemuel is who this is attributed, is who wrote it from the words of his mom, focus on one who is dedicated to God or like unto God. Because I believe that this allegory really is who we are. I think that it's heavenly parents saying to the Savior, here's who you look for in your people. All throughout Scripture, oh sorry, all throughout Scripture, the woman is, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but the woman is Christ's people. And I'll show you some cool things about that. So hold that before we go there then. Here's what you need to know. Verses 10 through 31, it is so cool because it is a poem. And it is an acrostic poem. Do you remember doing this in elementary school where you'd write your name down the side of the paper and then you'd start each letter with something? So for Tammy, I do T, totally awesome, A, awesome again, M, <laughs> marvelous, yeah, whatever. You would do that acrostic poem. Well, the proverb of a virtuous woman is an acrostic poem. It doesn't spell anything. It's actually all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Isn't that cool? And the reason scholars believe it's written that way is so it's easy to memorize. So if you are singing this to your wife on Friday, you start with Aleph. Is the first thing. So it's so cool that it's easy to memorize. It's the Hebrew alphabet in order. All right, now we're going to go into this whole proverb then. Go with me to verse 10. And if you have your scriptures, mark them up or just take some fun notes. Sorry, I got, my glass. I got cocky. I didn't think I needed my glasses. All right, here we go. Whoa. Okay, verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? Let's talk about the woman. So, throughout scripture, the woman has always been identified most often as a symbol for Christ's church, his covenant people. There's just a few examples of the scriptures. And then I have some great quotes by Michael Wilcox, Harold B. Lee, and Marvin J. Ashton that support this theory. That when you read about the woman, especially in the book of Revelation, when you read about the woman who's travailing, that is Christ's church. That is the, the Savior getting ready to come. And so, think about that when we talk about in respect to this proverb, that the woman... It could really mean, here's what women need to do to be virtuous, or as an allegory, it could mean, here's what Christ's people will look like. Here's what his virtuous people cumulatively will be. And it's not a big laundry list of things to do when you say, I do, at all. It has nothing to do with being married. And we're going to get into that word in a minute. In verse 10, when it says, who can find a virtuous woman, let's just break apart the word virtuous. Okay, I love this. It was a word I was going to include in yesterday's lesson with the, with all the Hebrew words, but I scratched it because I thought we'll talk about it today. Virtuous. We have unfortunately limited this word to mean modesty and chastity, and it doesn't at all. In Hebrew, it is chayil, and it means strength or power. And not just in Hebrew. In Greek, in Latin, in Spanish, and people are sharing other languages, it means the same thing. In Alma chapter 31, verse 5, I give you two references where it is proven to be powerful. So in Alma 31, 5, Alma the Younger, he is trying to figure out how in the world are we going to convert the apostate Zoramites? Like, what can we possibly do and go in and try to get them to come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And this is what he says. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. 
the power of the Word of God, the strength of the Word of God, not the chastity of the Word of God, not the modesty of the Word of God. So then we go to Mark chapter 5, verse 30, when the Savior felt someone touched the hem of his garment, he says, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, he turned him about into the press and said, who touched my clothes? He felt power go out of him. So who can find a virtuous woman? Now, O-U-S, that suffix, when we add it to a word in the English language, it means to be filled with or full of. So we have a woman who is powerful, filled with power, full of power and strength. And then the question begs, well, where does she get the power from? This is so awesome. It's verse 11. The heart of her husband. She gets it from her husband because, you guys ready? I want to I drum roll. Like, <laughs> the husband is Jesus Christ. <gasps> is that so cool? I, when I was sitting in my room reading this proverb, it was a very spiritual experience for me, and I have not shared this with anyone, actually. I'm sitting against the wall, and I read the husband, and I said, Heavenly Father, you really have to be married to be virtuous. It just doesn't seem fair. Because I had a lot of friends who weren't married yet. And I sat there, and I said, please help me with this word. And Heavenly Father was like, you know who he is. I don't really. <laughs> like, who? And, he, and immediately the Spirit was like, it's Christ. It is Christ throughout Scripture. And I was like, duh, how did I miss that? Oh my gosh, all the years that I taught the husband is Jesus Christ. We believe that as a people. These are just several references. There are so many more references where it tells us that Jesus Christ is the husband or the bridegroom. It is who we are waiting for to come again. When Jesus Christ comes, we are the bride, we are his people. He is the bridegroom that we are waiting for to come for his second coming. The husband is Jesus Christ. So now we've got, who can find a virtuous woman? A woman can find a woman filled with power. How does she get it? From the heart of her husband. And I think this quote is great by Jeffrey R. Holland. He's about this imagery. He says, the imagery of Jehovah as the bridegroom and Israel, us, as the bride, is among the most commonly used metaphor in scripture, being used by the Lord and his prophets to describe the relationship between deity and the children of the covenant. Now notice at the end, between deity and the children of the covenant, that is how we become married to Jesus Christ. The moment we enter into any covenant with the Savior, we become married to him. Now that might seem kind of weird, like why would we use that metaphor? Because it's the most intimate, most important relationship we have in this life where fidelity is required. And the Savior is saying, I want you to be 100% with me. I don't, in fact, when you read in scriptures about how the woman is called a harlot or a whore, it's because she's gone after other gods. We've read that in the Old Testament. She's gone a whoring. Again, the woman is Christ's people, covenant people. And if she starts to follow after other gods, then she's no longer part of the covenant. She can always come back, absolutely. But she has left the covenant or her aspect of that. So what do you think about that? The moment we enter into any covenant with Christ, we become filled with his power. The prophet teaches this, and so does Elder D. Todd Christofferson. Here's what the prophet said in 2019. Every woman and every man who makes covenants with God and keeps those covenants, and who participates worthily in priesthood ordinances, has direct access to the power of God. Those who are endowed in the house of the Lord receive a gift of God's priesthood, power by virtue of their covenant, along with the gift of knowledge to know how to draw upon that power. And then I love this because it's short. What is the source of such moral and spiritual power, and how do we obtain it? The source is God. Our access to that power is through our covenants with him. Can you imagine how incredible it would be 
on the day that our children turn eight, that if you're ever asked to give a talk at baptism, you teach. Today is the day you enter into the first covenant with Christ. Today you are virtuous. We should not be teaching or being forgiven of sin. We actually don't believe that. Moroni chapter 8 teaches children are not worthy of sin under the age of 8, so they're not coming to their baptism on the day of eight, age 8 to be forgiven of anything. They are solely coming to enter into their first covenant with Jesus Christ, to be filled with his power at a cute little 8-year-old age so that they can have that power with them for the rest of their lives. If we taught that throughout our children's lives, I don't think we'd have to have lessons on modesty and chastity. I think our children would inherently know how to dress and how to act because they knew who they were married to. They knew who they trusted and they knew who they loved. I think that is powerful from this proverb. So with that idea that that's where we get our power from, and that is where this virtuous woman gets hers is from the husband. Let's go back into verse 10 because I want to talk to you about rubies. So as I'm reading this, the first time I'm ever going to teach this lesson, I decided I know nothing about rubies, so I actually called a local jeweler. And here's how the conversation went. Yeah, hi, um, I'm calling to say, can you talk to me about rubies? Sure, what do you need to know? Yeah, how much do they cost? And he's like, well, that depends on how big they are. I said, okay, uh, a ruby the size of a quarter. He's like, uh, ma'am? <laughs> yeah, they don't come that big. I'm like, really? Okay, how about the size of a nickel? He's like, have you ever known, have you ever seen a ruby that big? I'm like, no, that's what I'm calling you. And so I said, I don't know how much they cost. And he says, Lady, if you ever found a real ruby the size of a quarter or a nickel, your whole family and your, and your immediate family and relatives could retire. And he goes, in fact, I've never even seen a real ruby in my life. They're all man-made, man manufactured. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, they're super duper rare. So I was like, okay, hey, this is awesome. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies, absolutely. But then I studied it more in Hebrew. So when you go into this and it says, her price. Here's what you need to know about her price. It's called a mohar in Hebrew. This is the bride price. This is what the groom would come to the father and pay to marry his daughter. And it was usually agreed upon before the marriage ceremony. The dad and the, and the groom would meet, and they would decide how much is your wife worth. And depending on how much she brought to the family, depending on how much she would be sold for. And so we have this mohar, and it says in here it's going to be far above rubies. But I love this idea in Hebrew. It's not actually the word is not is not rubies. It's panim, and it means corals or pearls. Now pearls was the standard, the standard in Old Testament time as the most incredible stone or anything to work with. Like I thought that was really interesting to learn. It wasn't rubies. It was a pearl. If you had pearls, you were very wealthy, very well off. But then I thought about this some more. That if the husband is Jesus Christ and we are married to Him. Then you go to the proverb in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. That's us. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. He was the price. He bought us with his blood. And it was determined before we were ever married to him, right? He went to the father and said, here's how much I'm willing to pay for them. Here's what I will give. And he did it. And it's done for every single one of us because we are his goodly pearls. And so when you go into this, who can find a virtuous woman? Wow, her price is far above pearls, and the price has been paid by the husband who is Jesus Christ. And then in verse 11 it says, so, and then 11 goes, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. He trusts in us. He trusts in his covenant children. You bet he does. 
And then it says, so that he shall have no need of spoil. Okay, spoils, such a great word in the Old Testament. So it's spoils of war. That's what it's referring to. Now there's two great stories. We have 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. This is when Saul takes the spoils of war. He was told by the prophet, listen, when you go in, just go in and destroy the village and come out. Do not take anything with you. So Saul goes in with his company. They destroy the village. And as they're leaving, Saul's like, maybe we should just pick up a few things on the way out. Fill <laughs> your pockets, men. And he also took some cattle and he took some um, sheep and some lambs because he thought, at least what we'll do is we'll offer sacrifice and thank the Lord for helping us in this war. Well, I'll tell you what, the best scripture ever is the prophet was not having it. And he says to Saul, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Like, that's one of my favorite verses, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Because Saul's like, I was going to offer a sacrifice. He's like, it doesn't matter. I told you not to take anything. No spoils of war. Because you would bring the spoils back to your village to add into excess of what you already had. You would add it to make it even more, like adding to your bank account to make it bigger. Another example of a spoil of war is the little maid with Naaman. She was taken as a spoil of war because you could take people. You would also take animals, gold, silver, food, anything that you wanted from that village that you destroyed. But in this verse, it says, he trusts her that he has no need of spoil. There's so much beauty in that. It's teaching us that the Savior, Jesus Christ, does not need anything more from us. As covenant-keeping daughters and sons of God, we are enough. He doesn't need any more from us. He doesn't have to add any in excess to us as covenant-keeping children. And I love that. We are enough of everything. We are pretty enough, skinny enough, good enough parents, good enough children. We are enough in whatever capacity you're in right now. However you're trying, whatever you're doing, if you're facing toward the Savior, you're absolutely enough. Because let's be very clear, the rest of these verses are not things you should be doing. They are things you're already doing as covenant-keeping sons and daughters. And that's the premier message of this proverb. You should not be reading this thinking, all right, well, let's start. What do I got to do? There's just so much. That is not the message of this proverb at all. So as you go through each one, I went through each, pro each verse, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. This is what it means. And we don't have time to even go through any, really. <laughs> there's one we have time to go through. Maybe if we have time at the end and there's one that you're curious about, I can tell you about it. But there's one that I really for sure want to talk about because it's the one that makes me laugh the most, and it's 21. Okay, here we go. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. Now, I did read some commentaries, old commentaries, that really say she is not afraid of snow, and her family dresses very well, and she dresses them. And I just thought, that cannot be real, because I'm terrified of snow. I don't like driving in it. It's awful, and my family, we do not dress well. <laughs> We're all about hand-me-downs in Walmart, so this is from Walmart. Um, I just thought there's got to be more to that, so I looked into all the words, and how fun is this? Okay, snow is a symbol in scripture of death. When snow comes on the ground, that is the end of plant life for that season, and things die, and they're covered in snow, and they're gone. So now this virtuous woman, she is not afraid of death. What kind of death? Spiritual and physical, because, look at this, all her household is clothed with scarlet. Anytime you see the word scarlet in Hebrew, or red, or maroon, or sometimes purple, it is a symbol of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now look at this again. She is not afraid of death for her household, for all her households are clothed with the atonement of Jesus Christ. She has covered them. That's a kind of cool thing. I don't have a slide for this, but just as a side note, 
The word for atonement in Hebrew is kafar. It's spelled K-A-P-H-A-R, and it literally translates as to cover. And so she has covered her family in the knowledge of the Savior's atonement of Jesus Christ. And, and I just think that is so powerful. Now, I'll share with you a story where I saw this happen. And I'm just going to apologize because it makes me super emotional because the person I experienced this with this year, and I love her, she's one of my very best friends. Several years ago, she and her husband decided to surprise their children with a trip to Disneyland, but they didn't want to take their two youngest because they wouldn't be able to go on the ride and it wouldn't be any fun. So she decided, let's have grandma babysit the two littles. And grandma was babysitting the two littles, and while they were on their trip, they got a phone call that said, come home, your daughter has passed away in the middle of the night, her two-year-old baby. And the baby's name is Joy. It was devastating. I remember getting a phone call, because I was in Arizona, from a friend that said, hey, I just want to let you know your friend Cammie's daughter died. And my, I've never seen my husband cry. He started crying. Like, we were so sad. We got home before they did, so I ran into her house to clean it. Do the, do the first clean before the Relief Society comes in. You're welcome, Tam. Um, <laughs> I'm like, we got to clean this out. So my daughters and I went in to clean, to put the dishes away, everything like that. Uh, Tammy and her family came home. They got all of the, everything ready for the funeral. And the night before the funeral happened, my friend called me and she said, will you come with me to the funeral home? I just want to sit in the room with my baby before tomorrow. And I was like, that seems weird. I, I've never done that before, but you bet I'm going to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. I'm coming. So I picked her up and we went with another friend and we drove up to the funeral home. And we walked into the room where this little baby was laying. I will never forget this moment because my sweet friend walked over to the casket and lifted that little lifeless body out of it and came back and put it on our laps. And she stroked that baby. And she hugged that baby, and then I, I, the moment that got me was when she brought it in and smelled it and said, I don't ever want to forget how she smells. At that moment, in my mind, I'm like, why are you yelling? You should be so angry right now. Like, I fully expected a Hollywood moment where she fell to her knees and yelled, why, God, why? This isn't fair. I wasn't home. You were supposed to do this. It was a part of my plan. Nothing. She didn't do that. We sat there and had one of those spiritual experiences ever as we loved on that little baby. And what my friend said was, I'm not mad because I know that Heavenly Father loves me. And I know that the plan of salvation is happy and that I will see my joy again. I was shocked. And I look back to that moment, that experience, and I go back to verse 21. My friend Tammy is not afraid of the snow for her household, because she has covered her household or clothed her household in her testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't that powerful? Don't you love that verse so much more than just being afraid of the snow and dressing nice? <laughs> right? I think that is so cool to think that that is what a covenant-keeping woman and a son look like. That's what it means. If you're keeping your covenants, you are absolutely enough. You are filled with his strength and filled with his power to carry on to do everything that you were sent here to do. Now, if you're thinking, but I am failing so bad in my covenants, I don't visit teeth or I'm not ministering or, you know, whatever it is that you feel lacking in, let me share this with you because this is awesome. And I learned this from Susan Easton Black when I took uh, a class from her when I attended BYU and I've never forgotten that that's how long ago it was. 
she said, let me ask you this. If you feel like you're lacking in any of those areas and you're not doing a very good job of keeping your covenants, it's okay. Because one of the things you have to think about is how do you answer questions about covenants? Like when you go and you get your temple recommend question and you're asked if you're doing all of these things. And she said, you know what, let's just start with baptismal covenants. Actually, that's where we want to start. She said, how would you answer to this question? Are you mourning with those that mourn? And I was like, yeah, I am. Are you comforting those who stand in need of comfort? And I was like, yeah, I am. I'm trying. Are you standing as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places? And I thought, boy, I'm trying. I'm not the best at it, but I'm, I'm trying. And then she said, if you answered I am to any of those questions, you just answered in the Savior's name. Now, I am had me forever when wondering what that means in Hebrew. Because when Moses is up on the up on the Mount Sinai and the Lord comes to him and Moses goes, How will the children of Israel know that you really sent me? Because they're not going to believe that me, who used to be an Egyptian, is coming to save them. And the Savior says, Oh, just tell them I am sent you. And that's what I was like, why would he say I am and not Jehovah? Why would he say Yahweh, right? Of all the names to use that one. He says, Moses, tell them I am sent you. And this is cool. Because I am translates as, I will become who I will become. And the people knew who they were waiting to have come. They're Jehovah. When we answer in, I am, we are answering, I am becoming who I will become. I'm doing my best. Tomorrow's a new day, and I'm going to wake up and give it a shot again. All hope is not lost. I had a seminary student once who came into me and she plopped herself down on a chair crying. And she's like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm never going to make a celestial kingdom ever. Like, I've sinned. I'm so wicked, Sister Uzlak. And I was like, you're fine. I promise. God loves you. She's like, you don't know what I've done. I'm like, no, I promise. I'm pretty sure you're going to be covered. You're fine. It's like, you seriously don't know what I've done. And I was like, did you kill a man? <laughs> I really asked him, like, did you kill somebody? What are we talking about? like, I didn't kill anybody. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're totally fine. Yeah, you're covered. Get out of my office. Like, start over tomorrow. I mean, come on. If you're trying, you're good enough. And when we go through all these verses in here, verse by verse, you're doing it. Every one of you. The fact that you're here today, you are verses 10 through 31. Take heart that God loves you and he knows that you are enough. He sees you. He recognizes you. I love the scripture, Psalms chapter 56, verse 9. We talked about it this week in the, in the um, podcast that I get to host for Deseret Book. It's so cool. Psalms 56, 9 says, God is for you. Isn't that awesome? God is for you. He is absolutely for you. He is cheering you on, and he has a plan for all of you. And I just think this scripture is so phenomenal. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for adversity, to give you a future and a hope. And that comes from the, the New King James Version, because I, I love all the different versions. It translates beautifully as that, like he has a plan for you, and it's a plan for peace and not for adversity. So take heart that God loves you, take heart that he has a plan, and now my dear friend who has lost her beautiful child, she has such incredible perspective that she has shared with me over the years. I do love her, and I love her testimony in the atonement of Jesus Christ. And listen, it wasn't easy. It took years to get there. We would walk after Joy passed away. We'd go on morning walks. One of my favorite things she ever said was, as if we were walking, and she was crying about losing her child. She was, I'm just so glad I never potty trained her, because then I'd be really mad. <laughs> 
and I laugh. I hadn't potty trained yet, but then when I did potty train, I remember that. I'm like, that's a good point. You can't complain. It's all bad. All right. Got three a bone on that one. So I just thought it was so awesome when she said that. And she's got a, such a great sense of humor. And I have loved her influence in my life. It has changed me. And I think if we look around at people in our lives, we are all virtuous. We just need to be cheering each other on and using this proverb to do that. And that is my testimony of it. I love this proverb, and I am just dedicated to making sure we teach the truth from this verse, from all these verses, and especially to our young children, to let them know that they're enough, to let them know that God loves them and that they are virtuous and just filled with his power and that they can do amazing things. And I have a daughter who has severe anxiety, and we have this conversation often, and I have to remind her, you have his power in you. You can do this. I get it. I know how hard it is to raise kids like that or a child with a disability. You can do this. It's hard. You bet it is. And there are days we want to quit. But it is being virtuous. It is that power that God has given us to get through all of it. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.